This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue to look at the kind of partner God has chosen in Abraham. And uh, we're, we're going to be reading Genesis 18 to 22, covering that whole chunk today. Uh, we're, we're actually not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to start in Genesis 18, where we see Avraham modeling hospitality. So, Marty, I think you're going to read that. Right? Yeah. Right, yeah, probably be, maybe we could go back and we'll recap just a little bit of where we've been. Uh, if you remember, we've been talking about the preface of Genesis, this greater, uh, all these eight different stories where uh, the author or authors of Genesis, God through Genesis is trying to convince uh, mankind to trust, um, to not live out of their fears and insecurities, but to trust that they've got the love and the value and the acceptance of God. Because if they're going to live a life dominated by fear of what they're not and dominated by fear of what uh, what they don't have, if they're going to act out of insecurity, um, the stories are going to end in a tragedy. And that's what the preface showed us. And out of the preface and to the introduction, we met this guy by the name of Avram. And we've seen throughout his life, we've seen Avram um, do incredible things uh, that we just hadn't seen yet in the story. Put his life on hold, put his name, uh, as far as he could tell, throwing his legacy away in order to give Yiska Sarai dig- dignity and uh, to marry a barren woman. We've seen him struggle uh, to try to figure out what it means to trust the story. He's not perfect. He's just like you and me. Uh, He put his trust in Egypt, but he learned from that. He didn't let that mistake define him. He didn't let, he didn't settle. One of the themes that's been coming all throughout the story of Genesis is God doesn't want people to settle uh, until they can find their way back to the tree of life. Um, and Abraham doesn't settle. Avram doesn't settle. He learns from his mistakes. He doesn't settle in his mistakes. He doesn't let those bad chapters define him. And, uh, and he picks up right where he left off. And so we see him give up Lot, not once, but twice. And we see him struggle again, to struggle to figure out what it means to trust the story. And, and, uh, and God meets him there and, and wrestles with him in that and gives him some more promises. And then Avram continues to struggle and he kind of screws up the story with, Um, with Hagar using his perspective and his limited insight to try to figure out what God's doing. And and that kind of falls apart and blows up in his face. Um, But God comes to him and says, you're still the guy. And in fact, I'm going to give you a mark. I'm going to give you the sign of the covenant. So instead of the story of Noah, where God says, I'm keeping the sign of the covenant, God says, I like this partnership, Avram, and I'm going to give you the sign of the covenant. I'm going to give it to you in a way you're not going to lose it. Uh, but I'm asking you to buy in a little bit more into the relationship. I'm expecting a little more out of you, Avram, than I did out of Noah and the people early in the story. And so he invites them into the covenant of circumcision. And that's where we're going to pick up. And the, the reason I do the review like that is it's really important to remember the, um, the context of this, not just dive into the story, but always to remember the context of the story, where it lands, what it's coming after and what it's heading into. That's just really important to keep our eyes on that. So we're picking up right after the story of circumcision. And the, and the question here is, okay, so as Avram's got this sign of this new covenant, this, this covenant of circumcision that he's made with God, what is, what kind of a guy is, is Avram going to be in this new covenant? What kind of a, what are we going to see Avram's? What's the next thing that we're going to see come out of Avram in his walk with God? What's going to be the, the defining mark of of who he is as a, as a follower of God. So that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up here in Genesis 18. In fact, 
Uh, how about you read, and I'll stop you, Brent. All right, I'll uh, kick it off. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Avraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Which I like your context, because if you just start right there, you is he just like chilling in the tent? Right, right. <laughs> but no, he just got circumcised. Right. So he's taking a little break. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Avraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. Okay, so I'll stop you there. So one of the things that we don't uh, often find ourselves aware of unless we've studied it or have ever been to the Middle East, the Middle East has this unbelievable cultural premium on hospitality. Um, And the reason they have this hospitality, uh, any of them will tell you, whether you're talking to a Bedouin, a Muslim, a Palestinian, an Israeli, if you're ever over there, uh, they'll tell you, well, we're children of Abraham. Like the defining mark of Abraham was his hospitality. Hospitality has this unbelievable premium over there. It is one of the highest values they have culturally. I can remember when I was on one of my, um, in fact, it was my first Israel trip with Ray Vanderlaan, and we were... Uh, we were over in Israel. We were just outside of Tel Arad, and uh, he took us on this little hike, and we started walking, and we came over this little rise, and all of a sudden, you could see this little Bedouin settlement uh, kind of off uh, just over the hill, and we're walking straight for it. And the whole group, there's 54 of us Americans, we're like, we're walking right towards that Muslim village. Like, what's going to go on? And... Uh, and all of a sudden we see in the distance, we see all these little children come out of the houses and they start running towards us. And we're like, oh man, what's going on here? Because, you know, we've been real informed, informed Americans over here. And uh, these children come running out to us and they greet us and they're just so full of joy. They meet us about half a mile away from the village by the time they get to us. And we can't talk. They don't know English. We don't know Arabic. And, and, and we're having these kind of weird interaction, half conversations as they lead us into town. And and we eventually get into town and they lead us to the home uh, of a woman there. And uh, I have her picture. Her name was Hadija. I have her, her picture hanging in my kitchen uh, to always remember the time I spent at her house on this trip. But we came there and she took 54 of us Americans unannounced. We had not called ahead of time. Um, and, and she brought us into her home uh, everybody came in from what they were doing. All the, the men were out working in the city, but all the women came in. And uh, we all sat down in this large sitting room of their, kind of like a porch in their house, and they started making homemade bread. They emptied their cupboards. They got out uh, these little glass cups for everyone, uh, which I don't even know. I don't even, if it were my house, I don't even have 54 cups. Uh, to serve everyone, but they did, and they got it all out, and they served. Um, they made us this homemade honey tea, uh, and tur- uh, it was almost like a Turkish tea, almost. It was a Middle Eastern tea, and then they made us homemade bread, 
and we ate bread and drank tea until they ran out of stuff to serve us. And I remember Ray, our leader, just telling us the important premium they put on hospitality, how this was one of the greatest honors and greatest joys. And he said, you as Americans are going to want to pay, pay her for her service, pay her for. And he says, don't you dare do that because you will rob her of one of the greatest joys and honors we could ever give them. We were guests here and at one point during our time there, as we sat there and relaxed, I remember I remember we had a translator there, and we were asking, uh, one of the questions got asked of Hadija. They said, what is it that you want in life more than anything else? And she kind of got on her knees in the middle of the circle, and she kind of looked around at us, and she held her arms kind of outstretched, and she said, Salem, uh, Arabic for peace. And she rattled some stuff. The translator said, she wishes that we could sit here like this and dine like this forever. And uh, it was just this incredible, uh, at one point, Ray said, if this village were to come under attack, every single one of these people here would lay down their life in order to protect you before they let anybody harm you because you are their guest. Um, It's an unbelievable experience to experience Middle Eastern hospitality. And, uh, And they say, all these people groups say it's, of course, it's because we're children of Abraham. What we see in this story here is Abraham is the kind of guy who's going to go out of his way to honor, to welcome, to generously be hospitable to three men he doesn't even know who show up in the middle of the day at his tent and he's going to hurry. Some people like to make a big deal out of running because um, one of the things that often gets talked about in Middle Eastern culture, which is absolutely true, is an, a, a patriarch does not run. And they don't run. Some people say that Abraham's running in the story. It doesn't say in the text that he's running. It says that he hurries. So you might have kind of insinuation or an implication there that he might be, he's doing something that is bordering on really culturally, it's bordering on crazy uh, in his culture, but it doesn't actually say he's running. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in that conversation and that argument, we actually miss the thing that is happening right in front of us. Because these visitors stop by his tent, and you pointed it out, Brent, he's sitting in the heat of the day. Why is he doing that? Because he just got circumcised. So he just got circumcised, and he's hurrying about. Like, this guy has 318 people in his household. Like, send somebody else to do it. Send Eliezer, your head priest, or your head, uh, not your head priest, your your chief servant of your household. Send Sarah. But this is the kind of guy who's going to get up right after that uh, uncomfortable surgery, and he's going to hurry about to welcome guests that he sees coming in the distance. Um, it, this is the kind of guy that God has marked with the sign of a covenant that says, I'm willing to partner with this guy. And to go back to my story, that was a humbling experience that day. Because uh, I grew up in a, in a culture that had told me, um, they had told me what Muslims believed. They had told me that I, they were all out to kill me and they hated me. They were my enemy. And uh, what I found out that day was uh, something uh, radically, radically different. Something very uh, countercultural something that I did not expect, something that I don't think I would do because I'm too worried about my own security. I find it convicting to to consider if we were at home and we saw 54 Muslims come over a hill, I wonder if our first reaction would be to send 
our four and our five-year-old children out to greet them a half a mile away. And I wonder if we would lock our doors or if we would throw them open and invite them in and make them a feast until we ran out of groceries. I just, I am far too worried about my own security. I'm far too worried about the things that I'm afraid about. And I go back to the preface because what I see in this is God saying, if you're going to function out of your fear, and if you're going to function out of your insecurity, we're not going to be able to put the world back together. To put it in New Testament terms, the kingdom of God can't come to that place. The kingdom of God can't show up in a place ruled by fear. Uh, But a place ruled by trust, I trust that God's got this. I trust that God is for me. I trust that I can lay my life down on behalf of other people. I don't have to be afraid. I'm not going to function out of fear. I'm going to function out of generosity, hospitality, trust, self-sacrifice, Avram's narrative is a consistent narrative of self-sacrifice, and this is why God has marked him with the mark of circumcision. But I just find that to be really good. But uh, go ahead and finish the story. So Avraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Okay, stop. Three sayas of fine flour. Three sayas is about roughly 60 pounds. Now, I don't know if you've ever baked 60 pounds of flour. None of us have, because that is an uh, If you can imagine going to Walmart and getting those little pound bag of flours, 60 pounds of flour is a lot of bread for three guests. And again, you don't just see a guy who's willing to accept people with some hospitality. You see somebody who's hurrying, who is extravagant, who is going above and beyond the call of duty to, to do the things that that God has asked him to do, to be the person that God has asked him to become. Three sayas. The Jews called this a miracle. They actually connected this kind of miracle to radical hospitality. If you, if you offer yourselves to others in radical hospitality, God will work miracles uh, in the way that you offer your life. But um, okay, go ahead. Keep going. I don't suppose you know how many loaves of bread you can get out of a pound of flour. Oh my goodness, I don't. I can't imagine, but more than one, uh, I do know that much. <laughs> I see Brent on Google right now. We got to find out. You got to find out. Because I don't think about weight of flour. Like, right. What is that? Uh, we don't do that. Yeah. We don't make our own bread anymore. Right. I, I, I mean, we I just imagine, buy the loaves. Yeah. I imagine he, you know, he's feeding these guys for like a month, like a month's worth of bread on their way. Uh, so it's about. 80 loaves of bread that that's Sarah a lot of bread. made. That's a lot of bread. So, you know, they, they all walk out of there with you know, 25, almost 26 loaves apiece, those three visitors. And she didn't go to the store to buy 80 loaves, no. which would be crazy. No. She made 80 loaves by hand. Right. And I know that, and I know that we, our Western logical mind says, uh, well, well, of course she had all those servants. They all helped her, which is, I mean, logically very probable. Um, not just even possible, but probably even probable. But the, the Jews and the rabbis and the sages teach, well, this was, the text tells us this, Sarah did it. And it's this indication of this miraculous. But uh, anyway, good stuff. All right, continuing on, verse 7. Uh, then he ran, there's your running right there. Then he sure. ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then uh, brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. 
While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Avraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? All right. So there's a couple of interesting things going on there. Uh, we saw the same reaction from Avraham in the last chapter when he was told he was going to have a son. And he's like, are you serious? Like, And he laughed, but the rabbis teach there must have been something different about Avraham's laughter and Sarah's laughter. You're about to read more about that. But what she says here is actually interesting in the Hebrew. Uh, seems to imply uh, a sense of not just the logical, am I going to bear a child, but the actual intimacy <laughs> required to bear the child. May I have this pleasure in the Hebrew seems to refer to uh, a sexual pleasure in the Hebrew. But uh, it's just interesting. It's, it's not like this, mat, like, oh, I'm going to have this. But, oh, yeah, really? We're going to be able to do the deed that's required in order to have children? That will be rich. That kind of seems to be her, her comment. But go ahead and finish that. Then the Lord said to Avraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Well, I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. There's a funny little ditty there at the end. Yeah, and I don't know why I remember that. I feel like I should point out, though, in that last paragraph where it says, the Lord said to Avraham, and then is there anything too hard for the Lord? It switches. It's actually the uh, all caps version, as in the name of, right. of God, right? as opposed to all the previous instances of Lord in the story. Correct. Or not. Correct. Which is a, an interesting conversation. It almost gives the... You wonder how much Avram knew. Did Avraham know that this was God visiting, or did Avraham just see these men as visitors? Uh, and the story really seems to imply, because of the usage of Lord here and the way that they're talking, uh, he doesn't necessarily see him as God that has come. He sees him purely as this uh, man that he's honoring by calling him Lord and giving him that title. But yeah, I guess I actually slightly misspoke. At the very beginning of the chapter where it says, the Lord appeared to Avraham, that is the name of God. But then when Avraham first speaks to them, he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, and that is right. lowercase Lord. Right, correct. So we're going to kind of bounce to the next few chapters here. Uh, this chapter continues, chapter 18, and you see uh, God reveal his plan um, about Sodom. Uh, to Avraham. And what's interesting, God shows up and God says, uh, we're going to talk about this more later, but God says, the cry, the Zekah of Sodom has reached my ears. And so I'm here to see if it's as bad. And Avraham enters into this like negotiating bargain conversation. He's like bartering for the salvation of Sodom with God, which is this really interesting story but one of the most common things you'll see throughout the teachings of Judaism is the patriarchs were people who had what was called chutzpah, C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, um, chutzpah. And it was this, uh, it's, it's, it's guts, it's a little fire in your belly, it's passion, it's, uh, it's uh, in, a, in another language, it's cojones. It is the stuff you need in order to get the job done. And 
this Abraham is willing to go toe-to-toe. At this point in the story, he realizes who he's talking to. And he says, this isn't who you are. This isn't your character. This isn't what you do. You don't come wheel and deal destruction. So what if I can find 40? What if I can find 30? What about 20? What about 10? And he, he continues to to barter and to bargain God down to this. It's just an interesting interchange that he has enough reverence and respect for who God is, and yet he has the chutzpah that's needed to go toe-to-toe and say, wait a minute, this isn't who you are, and I'm going to, we're going to call this later in the story a priestly role. Um, Abraham is going to intercede on behalf of other people, and it's really interesting to watch that conversation go down. And I definitely encourage you to... to. Uh jump out of the podcast for a minute and read that story because it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're going to leave 19 until later. When we get to Exodus, we're going to come back and catch the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I don't want to get lost and off track here. We're, when we get to Exodus, we're going to take a look at the three stories in Torah, the three dominant stories in Torah where we see God's wrath. And what I want to point out as we go past is a couple things. Number one, this story is an oddity. We have not seen a wrathful God. This is what Avraham says. Avraham says, what are you doing? This isn't who you are. We get this picture that the God of the Old Testament is this harsh, punishment-wielding and dealing God, and it's just not the case. We have seen a God of grace, 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 and all of a sudden we run into this story where God's going to rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom. So there must be something going on there, as we're going to see in Exodus. Exodus is going to be a weird story. This is not the character and the nature of who God is in Torah. And so when we get to Exodus, we're going to actually see that in the in the text itself, in the literature, um, these stories are connected, and there's a reason there, and I think it's going to be pretty illuminating. But we're going to come back to that. So I'm going to put the pause button on, on Genesis 19 and just mention one more thing in passing. Uh, one of the things we see about Lot, if you remember, uh, Lot is where, Brent? He's in Sodom. Right, and he's sitting in the city gate. So what's actually interesting is Lot went there as kind of a foreigner. He settles in Sodom, and by the time we get to him later in the story here, he's now a city official. That's who sits in the city gates. If he's in the city gates, he's somebody of, of significance and importance in Sodom. And so Lot's really had, he's really risen in his prominence and his leadership in, in Sodom. Uh and it's interesting, the Midrash talks about the three characters of Genesis. It talks about uh, Lot, the assimilator, uh, Noah, the insulator. They call him the man in the fur coat. And uh, Noah was this guy that didn't seem to care about anybody else. He was just like, sweet, I need to build a boat, take care of my family. Awesome. I'm in. And he just kind of cared about himself and his own. Lot was an assimilator. He assimilated into culture and actually lost his ability to impact. And Abraham, Avraham, is an engager. He's the guy that's going to engage culture and remain distinct from it and be able to impact it. So Lot is this guy that we find in the city gates at Sodom. But even Lot is made of the same stuff, the same stock as his family. And when you see the visitors come to Sodom, it's Lot that comes out to protect them. It's Lot that puts his family on the line. And I know that when you and I read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we are bothered by the fact that Lot would offer his daughters. We kind of, we're, and rightfully so, we're, we're appalled at this, like, I can't believe Lot would do that. Like, what, a, what an incredibly, but what we don't understand is the premium that the biblical culture places on hospitality. 
So Lot is even willing to offer his own family. And I know that we're like, well, why does it? Why does he offer himself? Because he's the guy that's got to protect everybody. And if he offers himself, everybody else goes down with the ship. This is somebody who's going to be willing to put his own family on the line if it means saving the foreigner, the refugee, the the this these people in need in his house. Um it's just a cultural difference we just don't understand. But anyway, we're gonna move on. We're gonna see in Genesis twenty, we're gonna kinda of skip that too, but you're gonna see Avraham is not perfect. We are going to consistently see Avraham do incredible things. He just displayed incredible hospitality, unlike anything we've ever seen in the story, and something that will remain distinct all throughout the story of the scriptures. Avraham, incredible hospitality, followed by more struggle. He This time he's going to repeat his mistake uh, with a guy by the name of Avi Melech, uh, and he's going to say that Sarah is his sister, just like he did before. I thought he had learned from his past mistake. Um, but in fact, Avraham is just like you and me. And Avraham commits the same mistakes. And sometimes even worse, he's with he's with less excuse this time than he was the first time. The first time he was wrestling with the famine and stewardship and responsibility and what he should do. But this time he knows better and he does it anyway. Um, but I'm not sure there's anybody listening to this podcast that can't relate to that that can't relate to knowing exactly what it's like to know something is out of bounds, to know how destructive something is, to know that you failed in some way and to repeat that same mistake. But again, the question is going to remain, is this where Avraham's going to settle? Is Avraham going to settle here in his mistake? Is he going to let chapter 20 define who he is and what his story is going to become? And the answer is going to be no. Um, Avraham's going to keep moving. Avraham's not going to be defined by that. So I want to kind of spend the rest of our podcast time uh, in chapters 21 and 22. We got two stories here. And before uh, you get started, I just want to say we do have a presentation for this portion of yes. the podcast. So yes, we do. This is a great time to scroll down in your podcast app and open that up. Or if you're sitting at your computer, click on that link. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So I'm going to jump in Genesis 21 and uh, you'll see this in your uh, in your presentation, which I'm actually going to pull up myself while we speak. Uh, but here we go. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Avraham in his old age. And at the very time God had promised him, Avraham gave him the name Yitzhak to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Yitzhak was eight days old, Avraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Avraham was a hundred years old when his son Yitzhak was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Avraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day that Yitzhak was weaned, Avraham had a great feast. And Sarah saw that the son whom Hagor, the Egyptian, had bore to Avraham was mocking. And she said to Avraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Yitzhak. The matter distressed Avraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Yitzhak that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of a slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Avraham took some food, 
and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the brushes, and she went off and sat down about a bow shot away. It'll be an interesting detail, by the way. About a bow shot away. And uh, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she, and she sat there. As she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, which I find interesting. God hears the boy crying. Doesn't hear Hagar crying because God is a God who hears the Zedekah. Uh, we'll talk about the Zedekah later, but the Zedekah is a cry uh, of people that have been unjustly treated. The cry of the oppressed. Uh, it doesn't say he hears Hagar's cry. It says he hears the boy's cry. Um, and uh, let's see where I live. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up, and he lived in the desert and became an archer. I have always found those details to be correct, interesting and connected. She sets him down and goes about a bow shot away, and then he grows up to be an archer. And I've wondered if it's not the author's way of saying these things that we do have a way of impacting who we become. This experience that Ishmael has uh, when he's a child, when he's an adolescent, ends up impacting him greatly uh, when he becomes an adult. Um, but nevertheless, did you have any problems as we read this? We haven't asked that question a lot because we've changed genres of literature. We're not in the same genre that we found in the preface, Genesis 1 through 11. We've entered into a more historical narrative genre. So that question isn't nearly as prominent, but it's always one that we want to be aware of. So did you happen to have any problems with this story, Brent? Uh, well, initially, we see Sarah. Um, she saw she saw Ishmael and Hagar, and she goes to Avraham and says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. But it was her idea in the first place to use Hagar to fulfill God's promise, right? Correct. So, like, I don't know. That just seems like a weird, dramatic shift. Right. And there and there like are it, a few, like, Midrash that talk about that and give some more uh, color to the story a little bit about whose idea it was. Was it theirs together? Was it hers? Was it his? Uh, those kind of things. Uh, I think a lot of us could relate to that in our human experience. Like the very ideas that we had, uh, they were really bad ideas. We didn't know it at the time, uh, but they end up being things we regret later. I mean, this is 13 years later, and she's like learned to hate the thing that she thought was a good idea earlier in the story. I mean, we've been there, right? But uh, And there could be more to it than that, but yeah. I mean, it seems like she would have like some level of compassion for for her slave and right. Ishmael. right. Even though, like, yeah, she she knows that God said it's going to be through Sarah and that line of offspring that I will make you a great nation. Like, she knew that. She didn't really know how that was going to work. So she tried the one thing that wasn't right. But now, like, there's just like this, it feels like this vile hatred right. kind of thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is, you know, it doesn't seem like it's in line with, with the character of of what these people are supposed to be about. Yeah, they're yeah, they're human just like uh just like the rest of us. And I, I've always taken a lot of solace in that. Any other problems? So then on the back of that, 
God turns around and says, yep, just do whatever Sarah says. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? what? <laughs> right. And then later in Torah is going to make a law that essentially undoes, this is going to happen again in the patriarch story with uh, Jacob and Esau and those kind of things. But God's going to make these laws in Torah that say, we don't want to go back there. We're not going to do that again. Uh, so if you have a son through another woman, whether it's your favorite wife, or you're not your favorite wife or whatever, that son has to be, have those firstborn rights. But in this story, uh, God says, we can't get, it appears that God seems to say, listen, I've got them. I'm going to take care of them. Uh, but we cannot get the story that we're trying to tell um, all jumbled up. This was not how I wanted the story to go. This is why I didn't want to tell you the answer in Genesis 15. This is why I wanted to remain silent. Uh, but now we have to deal with this other thing that we've got on our hands. And it's 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 problematic. But yeah. So then we see Avraham get some food and a skin of water and sent Hagar off with the boy. And when the water in the skin was gone, which I feel like would only take about an hour and a half, <laughs> she uh, she puts him under the bush. And what? Right. She puts her son under a bush and just right. like... Yeah, like one of the biggest things that bothers us about this story is uh, is that mom just leaves her kid. Like she just leaves her child under a, under a bush to die. And it's not that necessarily it doesn't make any sense or it's just unbelievable, but it's, it's definitely a thing that grabs our attention. Like, wait a minute. Like, I'm not sure I could do that to my, I'm not sure I could do that to my kids. Like I'd do something else, but man, well, that's a hard story to stomach. Why does she even feel like she has to let him die? Right. I mean, God told Avraham, yeah, you know, do whatever Sarah says. Uh, it's through Isaac, but you know, I'll make him a, a nation also. Cause he's your offspring. I'll do right. that. So I guess he didn't pass that on to Hagar. Perhaps not. She's not. She's not doing that. Right. Yeah. Very, very interesting story. Is there anything else about uh, this story that seems to be out of place? I mean, where were we introduced to Ishmael? Uh, it was a little while ago. Right. Like all the way back in chapter sixteen. All kinds of stuff has happened. Right. All kinds of, and all of a sudden he makes an appearance again. And the story is kind of weird because when you hear the story of Hagar and Ishmael and she lays the boy under a bush, like what is just your knee-jerk initial, like what do you picture in your head? Uh, like what kind of bush? What kind of boy? Oh, what kind of, like a small child. Right. She's laying a small child, like an infant, a baby, maybe a small kid. But do you he's picture a third? He's young enough that he's not going to get up and wander <laughs> off, I exactly, guess. Exactly. Right. And he's apparently in not as good a shape as she is. Like she an old woman, but her... He's 13 years old, we were just told, in the, at the end of chapter 17. We do not picture a 13-year-old boy who should be in much better health and be able to sustain life a lot longer than mom in this desert heat. But this this story seems to be oddly out of place because we're going to meet Isaac at the beginning of it, but then the very next time we meet Isaac in the next chapter, he's going to be old enough to carry wood. So now we just jumped, we jumped 13 years from Ishmael's birth to Isaac's birth. We're going to jump 13 years in the very next story from Isaac's birth to Isaac's, the binding of Isaac called the the Akedah. Like, what in the world? These two stories have been like moved to sit right next to one another. So we may want to keep that in mind as we read the next story. So I'm going to jump over to Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Avraham, and he said to him, Avraham, here I am, he replied. 
And God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Yitzhak, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Avraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Yitzhak. When he had enough food for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. And on the third day, Avraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Avraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Yitzhak. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Yitzhak spoke up and said to his father, Father, said to Abraham, his father Avraham, Father, yes, my son, Avraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Yitzhak said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Avraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Avraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Yitzhak and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called them from heaven, Avraham, Avraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Avraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Avraham called that place the Lord will provide, or in the Hebrew, the Lord who sees. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So, uh, this is one of those stories that I think those of us that have grown up in the church are far too used to. This whole teaching, by the way, that I've gotten on these two stories, uh, I learned from David Foreman. He has incredible teachings, uh, much better than the one I'm giving you now uh, online at Aleph Beta, and um, it's just some incredible stuff. But um, he calls this the lullaby effect when you hear a story so much that you just are too used to it. Because here's the story of a guy, God says, hey, I need you to go kill your son. And Avraham's just like, okay. And we're all, we all sit in church and we think, oh man, what great faith. This incredible faith of Abraham. The father of faith, right? The father of faith. And it's like, no, this is so screwed up. Like he's just willing to sacrifice his, his son. And, and so it should raise some questions. A little cultural context will help us. Every single religion that Avraham's ever been used to Every religion of his fathers, every religion of the land that he's he's in, every God system that Avraham's ever seen demands child sacrifice. It's a part of the system. So the fact that God would come and say, I need your firstborn son, uh, is not a surprise to him. It would be like, okay. And one of the things that's interesting about this is it takes him three days to go to Beersheba, uh, from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. That is at the most a half a day walk. Uh, in fact, I know one teacher, I cannot remember who it was, but I, I remember hearing from one teacher, they thought that Avraham actually went the long way around the Dead Sea <laughs> to get to Mount Moriah, uh, almost as a protest to say, God, I'm going to do what you told me to, but I'm going to give you every single chance to change your mind. And uh, it's just an interesting to see the angst that's going on there, but... We have all kinds of problems in this story, and some of them are solved by context, but we already said that these two stories were put next to one another. And so if you look at your uh, presentation, you'll notice the next slide there has um, all the parallels that we find. There are five different parallels. I think you could even find six, but I have the five major parallels that I picked up from Foreman um, in these two stories. First of all, there's the phrase, early the next morning, Avraham. 
that exact Hebrew phrase and its usage is only used these two times in Torah, right here in these two stories in Genesis. Um, 21.14 and 22.3 is where we find those. Um, in story A, the Hagar story, um, Avraham sets supplies on Hagar's shoulders. And then the Isaac story in chapter 22, Avraham sets supplies on Isaac's, Yitzhak's shoulders. In uh, chapter 21, Hagar puts the boy under a brush. And then in 22.9, Avraham puts the boy on or over in the Hebrew brush. In chapter 21, Hagar looks up to see a well. In chapter 22, Avraham looks up to see a ram. In chapter 21, the Hagar story is going to end with a covenant at Beer Shiva. In chapter 22, Avraham's going to end the, uh, it's going to end with a story of a covenant between Avraham and God. Uh, so you have, you have all these parallels, obviously in order, directly linking these stories. The author wants you to know these two stories are connected. So if I were to go back to the Avraham story, I would be looking for clues. I would be looking for hints. I would be looking for treasure maps. So do you think there'd be anything that we might look for, Brent? Well, we can always look for a chiasm. Oh, it'd just be such a good idea to look for a chiasm. And of course, if we were trying to save time, like we are right now, uh, you could just say, go to the next slide, because Marty's done the chiasm for us. Oh, yay. Thank you, Marty. Uh, we really appreciate that. I know, right? And so if you turn to the next one, you have some handwritten notes there. Sorry, they could be cleaner and nicer. Uh, but I started by circling the bookends. Uh, there is a Hebrew conjugation. It is not actually a word. If you try to look this up in Blue Letter Bible, uh, it will not have an entry because there is no actual word phrase here. It's, a, it's, con- it's like a passing conjugation. It's the way you translate the words around it. Um, but the phrase, here I am, or as it's been explained to me, if you wanted to talk about it in the Hebrew, Hanani, Hanani, here I am, he replied. And then at the end of the story, at the beginning of the story, God calls to him Avraham, and Avraham says, Hanani. At the end of the story, the, the angel calls to him Avraham, Avraham, Hanani. And that's what he says. If we go the next layer in, we might pull out uh, the idea that uh, Avraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And we might compare that to the backside of the chiasm where he bound up his son Isaac and laid him on the wood. Uh, You might notice the phrase, they went on together on the front end of the chiasm and the back end of the chiasm there in the green. And then in the, uh, the purple color there, I have underlined the center of the chiasm here, which is uh, somewhat misleading, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me ask you a question, though, Brent. I know you don't have kids at this point, but let's imagine you did. Your your dad walking up the mountain, right? And uh, you're you're you've been given orders to kill your son. You know what you're there to do. You know what is supposed to happen at the top of this mountain. What is your demeanor as you walk? Up this mountain, do you suppose? Well, I'm not happy. Right, you're not happy, right? And a lot of people when I ask this question, they're like, Well, I'm weeping, defeated. I'm defeated, I'm crying, I'm I'm visibly and when Foreman teaches about this, he says, There is no way, if you're a dad, that you're visibly distraught as you start up this mountain. Because if you're weeping or crying or visibly shaken, what is your son going to do at the bottom of the mountain? He's not coming with. 
Well, he's at least going to be asking. Or, yeah, ask, ask questions like, yeah. well, what's the, what's the big deal? Yeah, what's the matter, Dad? Do you want to have the conversation about what's the matter, Dad, at the bottom of the mountain? No, you do not, right? So, so you have this problem here. You're talking about anything other than the, like being visibly distraught is the last thing on your mind. You're talking about the weather. You're talking about the election. You're talking about the game last night. You're talking about the World Series and the Cubs. Like You're talking about anything other than... Oh, the Dead Sea sure looks full today, oh, doesn't dead, it? Yeah, boy, look at the Dead Sea. What a pretty dead... You're doing... Look at those clouds on the horizon. I think that's a storm coming. The one thing you're not dealing with. And what's interesting about that is when you look at verse... Let's see here. When you look at verse 7, it says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Avraham. In the Hebrew, that word spoke up uh, usually implies an interruption. Avraham is talking. He's like going about his business. He's distracting. And and his son Isaac stops him with the very word he's trying to distract himself with, uh, the, the word daddy. Because his one role, like what's the most primal, carnal, primitive role we have as as fathers, do you suppose, Brent? To protect our family. To protect our, our family, to protect our kids. And this is the thing that Avraham is wrestling with. God has told me to sacrifice my son. And he and, and Isaac unintentionally confronts him with the very thing. So Avraham finds himself in this critical moment of fight or flight. Is he going to run? Is he going to bail? What is it that he's going to do? And what he says is stunning. It says in the NIV, yes, my son. But if you translate it in the Hebrew, and I believe the ESV gets this correct, uh, it actually is the exact same phrase at the front and the back of the chiasm. It's Hanuni, here I am. In his moment of most critical need, in Isaac's moment of critical need, Abraham says, I know that we're going through a horrible desert, and I don't know how this is going to work. But the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to leave your side. Which is interesting because what did we say the problem with the Hagar story was? She abandoned him. She just abandoned her son. And the difference, these two stories are placed side by side, so we will juxtapose them. The difference between Hagar and Avraham is Avraham is the guy that says, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'll tell you the one thing that I do know, I'm going to be with, I'm going to be with you to the very end. Hanuni, here I am, and I'm not going anywhere. Which is going to be interesting because I think it's this story and the center of this chiasm that God is going to continue to call his people back to. When Moshe, later in the story, when Moses is talking to God at the burning bush, and God says, Moses, I need you to go down and rescue my people. And Moses has a few things to say about that. But one of the things that Moses says is, okay, I'm just supposed to show up after 400 years and say, God sent me. When they ask me what your name is, what in the world should I tell them? And one of the things that God says is he says, tell them my name is, and it's slightly different in the Hebrew because it's the unconjugated conjugation, which is why we have a hard time translating it. Uh, I am, we say, I, I am that I am, or I was, I am, and I always will be. It, it is an unconjugated conjugation. Here I am, here I was, here I will be, here I am. And I think it's God's call back to this fundamental story of their father, Abraham, and says, do you remember the story of your great father, Abraham, 
of who he was. I chose him because he's what I'm like. Abraham is what God is like. Abraham has a bit of the stuff that God is made out of. And God is a God that's never going to leave our side. And that's who Abraham was. And that's exactly why God chooses him. And God says, that's who I am, which is an incredibly poignant lesson in Exodus. Because what he's telling Moses is he says, you go back and tell those slaves who have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years that I've never left their side. I've been there with them the whole time. I've never left them in their moment of greatest need. You go tell them that that is my name. They think I disappeared. I never left for one moment. And I think, of course, we could play into the New Testament. We could talk about Jesus. Who are you looking for? And and the soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds in the Hebrew, because I believe it's the Jewish temple guard. If they're talking in Hebrew, Jesus would say, Hanuni, and they all fall down. And in Jesus's moment of greatest need, fight or flight, is Jesus going to head to the cross or is Jesus going to fight and run? Uh, Jesus says, I'm not going anywhere. In your moment of greatest need, here I am. I'm going to be the goat caught in the thorns. Uh, you could even talk about a few conversations in Revelation where, uh, where there's a reference to I am. It's a little tricky whether or not that's the same use of I am. But there's a few references there as well. But uh, Revelation would be a great place to use that too. A persecuted church wanting to know if they should stick with it. John trying to tell them to overcome and to hang in there. And, uh, and, 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 and Jesus saying, in your moment of greatest need, I have not left your side. So this is a story of Avraham. And of course, we still have this problem of how could God set Avraham up like this to do this sacrifice? It still seems a little... A little primitive, a little barbaric. But if you remember, if God is Eastern and not Western, if God is Western, he's just going to stand in a chair and tell Abraham, I'm not like the other gods. I'll never demand child sacrifice. Point number one, this isn't who I am. Point number two, but God isn't like that. If God is interacting with an Eastern culture, God is going to try to set up a rabbinical moment of discovery. A moment that Avraham will never forget so that he will truly learn the lesson. He won't just know the information. He will learn it in the most intimate way possible so that he can pass it on for generations and generations to come. And so God takes this demand that is so normal in Abraham's world. Uh, where the gods say, I need your son, and you just are supposed to say, okay. And God sets up this moment because he knows who Abraham is. And at the moment where the knife is in his hand, God says, all right, Abraham, stop, because I want you to know something. I'm not like those other gods. I will provide the sacrifice. Look over there. There's a ram in the thicket. That's who I am. That's who I'll always be. And I've chosen you because you're the kind of guy that's going to be radically hospitable, that's going to be radically present and committed to being there for people that need it. And so we continue to learn about Avraham. That's a good place to stop before we get to Isaac. Now, is there any significance to the ram? Because Yitzhak says, where's the lamb? And Avraham says, God will provide the lamb. But then it ends up being a ram. That's a good question. I would have to look at the Hebrew words there because there are two different words for lambs, rams, goats, uh, a general word for kind of all of them together. And it may be playing off of that. The one thing that is happening in there is uh, Hebrew does not contain punctuation. So when when Isaac asks, you know, where's the where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
And Avraham responds, the Lord God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, comma, my son. The Hebrew doesn't have the punctuation. We're punctuating that as translators. So Rabbi Foreman's pointed out, as well as many other Jewish teachers, that can easily read, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, which is my son. My son is the burnt offering. So there's an interesting conversation going on there. I don't know if it has any, uh, if there's any connection to the differences between lamb or ram. If there are differences in the original language, how those are playing out, that's a really good question. But it is a fun, it's not a fun, but it's an interesting dialogue there uh, to examine. What does Abraham know? What does Abraham believe? What does he not believe? Hebrews tells us he thinks he's going to get his son back. That's using, that's kind of cheating, using the New Testament to interpret the old here. But we can do that. Um, but, but what does he know? He tells the servant he's going to come back. Does he just tell the servant that because he doesn't want to deal with the explanation? Or does he actually believe that? There's so many interesting details here about um, what Avraham actually believes and, and what he's going off to do. It's quite a story either way. Either way. And a great one to kind of come to the end of Avraham's life. This defines who Avraham is, a guy who is not going to leave, a man of faithfulness, um, a guy of hospitality, a guy of self-sacrifice, 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 self-sacrifice. Avraham's not in this for him. Avraham is in this for other people. He's going to make a bunch of selfish mistakes. He's not going to let those mistakes define him. He's going to keep moving, and he's going to keep laying down his life in self-sacrifice for other people. Sounds great. I like it. Well, if you love on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. How many cups of flour are in a pound? Let me think about that. Here's what I found on the web for how many cups of flour are in a pound.